Well, welcome back once again to another episode of Theology Doesn't Suck, where hopefully uh, theology doesn't suck. <laughs> With you today, as always, is uh, one of your hosts, Josh Patterson. Uh, but today is is kind of a sad day, although it's going to be awesome because we have a super cool guest. But Marty is not with me today. And actually, Marty is away, his words, not mine, on a smoochy smooch vacation celebrating his 10-year uh, wedding anniversary with his wife, Kaylin. So congratulations to Marty and Kaylin on 10 years. Uh, may God, you know, continue to bless you guys and your marriage and your family, your kids, um, and all those wonderful things. Uh, and since you're not here, Marty, uh, this is the time when I would normally say mean things about you. But since you can't defend yourself, I'm going to just move on from that. And uh, we'll just jump in today uh, with our special guest. So with us today is Derek Vreeland. So how's it going, Derek? Oh, it's good. Having a good day today. Awesome. Good. So would you prefer to be called Pastor Derek, Pastor Vreeland, just Derek? Just Derek is fine. Perfect. Just Derek it is. Cool. All right. So you, uh, Derek, you are the uh, discipleship pastor at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. Is that correct? That is correct. I'm a discipleship pastor, which means I'm a pastor pastor because hopefully all pastors are making disciples. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. That's really cool. Um, I myself, so I'm a youth pastor um, and young and young adult pastor. I work uh, at a church called Seneca Creek uh, here in I'm in Gaithersburg, Maryland, uh, which is kind of close to D.C. Um, sure. And so sorry. Well, actually, let me ask you this first. This is a question we ask every single one of our guests. It's super important. It's very serious. Yes. And even if you feel like you don't have an answer, you have to anyway. OK. Uh, who is your favorite hockey team? Oh man. Uh it would be uh Team USA in the Winter Olympics. Ah, oh, there we go. That's a solid answer. I like that. No, that's respectable. We uh I don't think anyone has given us an international team before. So All right. That's, that's a good job. I like it. Um, that's the last time I've watched hockey. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're so we're huge Caps fans here. Marty uh, is from the Chicago area. He's a fan sure. of the Blackhawks. Um, I love the Washington Capitals. That's my team. So yeah. we always try to get as many people to say Washington Capitals is their favorite team, <laughs> just to be in, you know spiteful to Marty. <laughs> well, I'm I'm in Missouri, so you know it's all blues all around here. Absolutely. So all my all my St. Louis peeps are all still celebrating the Blues victory. So. Absolutely, yeah, that was really cool. That was neat. And but you're a are you a football fan then? I yeah, I'm a football fan first and foremost. Like football, basketball, baseball. Okay. Uh and then like World Cup soccer and then nice. Olympics. That's probably my ranking. And see hockey didn't even it didn't even break in my top <laughs> five. Yeah, that's fair. It's not not for everybody. We uh <laughs> actually we had um a couple episodes ago, we talked to Bruxy Cavey, yeah. and he's up in Canada, sure. and I was so excited to ask him that question, and he was like, oh, you have to forgive me. I'm a bad Canadian. I don't watch hockey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think Bruxy's a sports fan at all, really. I don't think he tracks with any team. Yeah, it's not really his thing, but he was awesome, awesome guy to talk to. We really yeah. enjoyed our conversation yeah. with him. Yeah, I love Bruxy. Sweet. Well, um, I guess today, just uh, to you know, get us started off... Um, could you just share a little bit about yourself, like maybe uh, like who you are, what you well, we kind of covered what you do, um, but you know maybe some of like your background, yeah. uh, that kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, so I've been married uh, 24 years awesome. to my high school sweetheart uh, Jenny. We met in youth group actually. Oh, her, perfect. 
her dad had been a pastor, so she grew up in a pastor's home. Uh, when I met her, dad was not uh, in ministry. Her mom was teaching kindergarten at a Christian school, so they were very centered in the church. And we met when I was 15 and she was 13, and then we started dating a couple years after that. So yeah, we dated in high school, got married in college, and uh, uh, here in St. Joseph, Missouri, where I'm serving as a pastor now, this is our hometown. And so we met here, we got married here, and uh, after I graduated college, I went on to uh, seminary at Oral Roberts University in Oklahoma. Uh, my spiritual journey um, began in the Southern Baptist world and then it drifted into the charismatic renewal. So uh, was in the Pentecostal charismatic tradition for a number of years. Okay. Uh, we had our first child in, uh, at the end of seminary and then moved to South Georgia, where I served as a youth pastor. So I'm here to tell you, Josh, Youth pastors are real pastors. Absolutely. I appreciate you saying that. <laughs> Absolutely. So spent five years as a, as a youth pastor at uh, Cornerstone Church in Americus, Georgia. Okay. That's in Southwest Georgia. Uh, five years there, we had uh, two more kids, uh, two more boys, in fact. And then after five years serving as the youth pastor at our church, I became the lead pastor. And I did that for uh, seven years I went back to school, uh, did a doctor of ministry degree at Asbury Theological Seminary uh, while I was um, in Georgia. And then in 2011, about eight years ago, uh, we came back to St. Joe, uh, where I joined the staff here at Word of Life Church here in St. Joe. Awesome. Very cool. Well, thank you. Um, And so today, uh, guys, we're going to be talking to Derek about his latest book, uh, which is called BTW, by the way, uh, Getting Serious About Following Jesus. Now, hopefully, if you guys have been following on Instagram, you have seen me post all sorts of stuff about this or on Twitter. Um, I was definitely unashamedly quoting your book, Derek. Uh, <laughs> great. <laughs> I really, I personally really, really enjoyed it. Um, it was really great. And so I'm excited to talk to you about that today. But also, um, you have some other books out as well. Is that right? Yeah, I've written some other books. Um, I, I really uh, got, I think, known uh, for writing. I wrote two study guides or reader's guides to thicker N.T. Wright books. So uh, Tom Wright has been my theological mentor for the last 10 years. Wonderful. And when his big uh, tome came out, Paul and the Faithfulness of God, I was one of the few people that read all 1,700 <laughs> pages. Well done. That is an accomplishment. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, I got burned out, to be honest. I got burned out. I, um, I I wanted to have it done by Easter that year, and, oh, man, I got about 1,400 pages, 13, and I had to take a break, but I finished <laughs> it up that summer. And, uh, I, you know, I, 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 I he helped me so much, I think, for— I mean, for Pauline theology, I really believe Paul and the faithfulness of God will stand out as a real uh, monumentous work. Mm. And I I felt that it helped me resolve some theological issues, answer some theological questions, particularly about election, eschatology. And so I wanted to do something with it. So I had this crazy idea. I thought, I'm going to teach the book as a class at my church. Oh, cool. (laughs) I figured I'd have three or four theology nerds uh, maybe hang out for a couple nights. But I had like 15 people that came every Sunday night 
uh, for nine weeks or 10 weeks or so. And I taught the book and I created notes for the class and I had people online. So I, was, I was blogging my notes Oh, cool! and people were like, Hey man, can you like PDF that to me when you get <laughs> done with your class? And so when the class was done, I organized all the notes and I realized, man, with a little bit of work, I could turn this into like a hundred page book. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I did, I self published, uh, through the eyes of NT Wright, a reader's guide to Paul and the faithfulness of God. And that was man, like 2015, I think. And uh, I still hear from people who are discovering that and they're using it kind of like cliff notes Mm -hmm. uh, as sort of a guide to work through that. Uh, Then after uh, Tom came out with The Day the Revolution Began, you know, his big book on the atonement. Yeah, another great book. Yeah. Yeah, everybody's excited about that. And it was supposed to be a popular level book. You know, there's no footnotes in it. It's not one of those, um, you know, big, thick academic books, but it was still like 450 pages. (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, that book was phenomenal. And I thought, well, because I'm heard so much great feedback on, uh, through the eyes of N.T. Wright, I thought I'll do a reader's guide for Paul and the faithfulness of God and uh, did the same thing, taught it as a class, took my notes and, uh, created another little study guide. And, uh, again, I hear from people regularly who are discovering that and finding it very helpful. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm a so I'm a huge NT Wright fan. Actually, uh, the first theology book I ever read ever uh, was Evil and the Justice of God, and yes. it was handed to me by a, a theology two professor, uh, my professor Jay McDermott. I went to Messiah College. Oh, uh, very good. Yeah, and so that that was awesome, and that started me down a whole path of I don't know if you can see, but directly behind me, this shelf right here is all. And T. Wright books, nice. <laughs> including Very that good. that massive volume, Paul and the Faithfulness of God, which I have <laughs> not read the whole thing. <laughs> and I, your companion guide, uh, it seems like it would be very helpful. It is actually sitting in my Amazon cart currently at this time. Very uh, good. But as the listeners know, I have this problem where Amazon just keeps sending me books and I keep having to tell my <laughs> wife, like, I don't know what's going on. So I think I have to behave for a little bit and then they'll show up. <laughs> I understand. I yeah. understand. Yeah, so it's it's super cool. Um, but yeah, awesome. So yeah, I just wanted uh, to kind of give people some background about, um, you know, maybe where you're coming from. Um, yeah. I knew by, you know, mentioning uh, that you did a lot of work with N.T. Wright and that you really liked him, uh, that that would kind of help people yeah. Uh, place, you know, where you might, you might land. I'm also, N.T. Wright's my favorite, uh, theologian. Um, yeah. and I, yeah, so that's really cool. Uh, so thank you yeah, for and, doing and, that. Right. And so I quote from Tom a lot throughout the book. Um, I could have quoted from him more. I mean, there's probably times where I'm sort of channeling him, mm-hmm. uh, and not directly quoting him, but, uh, yeah, it's if, if and and he, there was a book that I think it was a collection of uh, sermons he did. There is a book um, by Tom Wright on following Jesus, um, but it was more of a collection of sermons. I think it was like uh, an editor who who did that. Um, he did not. I don't think sit down to write a discipleship book. Um, but so I, I would say, you know, if 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 Tom Wright was, uh, yeah, that's it. <laughs> Biblical reflections on discipleship. I think though, if if this book really is, if, if so if people know and love Tom Wright and his work, I mean, you can imagine if, if he's sitting down to write a discipleship book, it might sound a little bit uh, something like what I wrote because he's had such an impact on me. And uh, I, I can't thank him enough for 
Um, what I say about Tom Wright is it's not that he took anything away from me theologically. He just expanded my mm, theology. Absolutely. I like and that language. It, yeah, and he gave me a, a, a foundation that uh, is so solid. And, and it's a foundation I think is very broad, which is, I mean, Tom Wright is, has such an appeal broadly, I mean, ecumenically. I mean, mm-hmm. it, uh, pastors from different traditions um, are all reading Tom Wright. Yeah. And of course, we'll, we'll have some nuanced uh, differences, um, but he's done such a great job of painting the big picture Absolutely. of God and the gospel. And um, yeah, so he, if you're a Tom Wright fan, you'll definitely like my discipleship book. Absolutely, I th- and that might be a, a big part of why I liked it so much. I, I, just, I really, seriously, I found it wonderful. I really enjoyed reading it. Um, I actually, I got through it pretty fast, and I would like to go back and reread it a couple times. Um, I was looking actually over. Uh, I'm a highlighter, so I highlight stuff in my book. So I was looking over some of the notes I was taking earlier when I uh, read through this. Um, but yeah, so I guess we can go ahead then and, and jump into your book. So just sure. kind of for a teaser for uh, some of our listeners who haven't read it, on the back of your book, um, it says really big, what if asking Jesus into our hearts is not the heart of the gospel? What if salvation looks different than we thought? And so you kind of really tackle that uh, in your book, and you do a really nice job of um, basically tying a salvation and discipleship together as one in, one in the same. Or like, I like to tell my right. students that Jesus is both Lord and Savior. You don't get him right. as just Savior. You need the Lordship bit. Um, so yeah, like what, what was the, maybe the problem or, or the, the main thrust of the argument that you were trying to make um, in your book? So evangelicalism has such an influence on American culture that people that aren't wouldn't go to church or maybe even claim, you know, the Christian religion as the box they'd mark off, um, have this sort of de facto um, understanding that there is a heaven, that there is a hell, Mm. that Jesus died, and that if you accept Christ or put your faith in Christ or call out to Jesus that you'll be saved and go to heaven when you die. That is just sort of in American culture. Now, Mm -hmm. of course, we're seeing, you know, a growing, um, well, we're seeing a generation, and you're you're working with them as a young adult pastor, you know, who are growing up with no religious affiliation, who Mm -hmm. that may sound foreign to them. Uh, but I'm in my mid 40s, and so sort of for my generation, you know, it's it. This is kind of broadly understood, and it is a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel. And so the book really grew out of my uh, work as a pastor, and really a lot of frustrations mm-hmm. with people who wanted to, you know, say the prayer get baptized, go through the motions, whatever they had to do so that they are quote unquote saved so that they can go to heaven when they die. And, you know, then you talk to them about following Jesus and they're like, well, (laughs) I got other things to attend to. Right. And so chapter one really in particular is where I'm trying to lay out that that I see is the problem. Sure. Absolutely. That people, the understanding of the gospel or the mission of Jesus is simply to get people to say nice things about them or 
some of the cliches from evangelicalism would be, you know, ask Jesus into your heart, accept him as your personal Lord and Savior. You know, what I would term as Billy Graham style evangelism mm-hmm. uh, that is problematic. And the the solution is to go back and listen to what Jesus actually says. And Jesus yeah. doesn't say, go into all the world and get people saved or right. go into all the world <laughs> and, and get people to ask me into their hearts. No, mm. Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples of yeah. all the nations. And so I began to see in my own work as a pastor that really uh, evangelism and discipleship really fit together. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of different evangelical movements and writers have had those in like separate components. You got evangelism over here, proclaiming the gospel, and then discipleship, something separate. But I, I see them. Uh, in the scriptures and particularly in the in the history of the church as being synonymous. Yeah, one and the same. That it's not so much when did you get saved, but how are you living out your salvation? In yeah. other words, the the response to the gospel is not making up in your mind what you believe about God or Jesus or asking Jesus into your heart, but the response of the gospel is to begin to rethink things, to come through the waters of baptism and now enter into this new world, this new life, walking with Jesus. Mm-hmm. So in chapter one, I argue that the essence of the Christian life, it's its not just the beliefs that you have that's important. It's not just the religious practices you have, though that's important, mm-hmm. I hope on that. But its very essence, the Christian life is a way of living by the cross and resurrection. Yeah, it's kind of like, I think you said like the Jesus truth plus the Jesus way equals the Jesus life kind of idea. Yeah, that was an idea. Yeah, Yeah, that came from uh, Eugene Peterson. And uh, it's something I've, 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 I've preached a number of times that people are frustrated when they confess the Jesus truth. And different traditions have different mechanisms for what it means to express the Jesus truth. Um, But they're frustrated because they they expect to experience this eternal life, abundant life, good life, whole life. Um, But the missing component is is the way part. So it's it's, if yes, it is important to know and understand the gospel and who God is and who Jesus is. And to be able to confess that, mm-hmm. so that's an important step, but you have to wed that. That's what Peterson said. You have to wed that to the ways of Jesus. And once you conf- your confession and the way that you live begin to match, mm-hmm. that's when you get to begin to experience uh, eternal life. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, I think what something that might be helpful uh, for our listeners specifically is if, if you could— um, kind of define what you mean, and I mean, you do this in your book, but what you mean by the gospel, like, I guess, what is the gospel? Because you did, um, you have a quote here on page 48, when you said, but the gospel is not a set of theological opinions propped up by our collection of Bible verses. The gospel isn't bits of information we know about God or how God saves us. The cross remains at the center of our faith, but the gospel is not a certain theory of atonement. And I think especially 
uh, within westernized Christianity, you know, especially with, like you said, like the Billy Graham uh, movement, I think a lot with uh, the Reformation. I mean, a whole bunch of awesome, great things came out of that. But we get fixated um, and oftentimes uh, like penal substitutionary atonement is conflated as the gospel. Right. Um, So do you agree that that's one and the same or no, they're different? And if they're different, how would you separate them? (laughs) Yeah, theories on the atonement are different than the gospel. Mm -hmm. So gospel in its historical setting is a royal announcement, an imperial announcement, right? So the the, the Greek word euangelion means good news, but not just good in a general sense. It's like an official press release from Rome. It was it was language from pagan culture that Christians began to adopt about Jesus. So it's it's an announcement uh, that that something has happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, so throughout the Roman Empire, when the Caesar wanted to make a, an announcement, a a euangelion to announce some good news, it would be that something has happened mm-hmm. uh, in the empire. And because something has happened, now everything is different because of this. Everything now is different, and everything in the future is going to be different. Mm -hmm. Uh, So in the book, the analogy I use is like getting pregnant. (laughs) When, When we found out that we were pregnant with our first, I mean, we were overjoyed. We were so excited. And so in the book, I tell a story about telling my parents, particularly my, my dad, uh, but it was big news. It was mm-hmm. exciting. Something had happened. We were pregnant. And when when I found out we were pregnant, I was, tw- let's see, I was 20, 24 when we found out my wife was, I say we were pregnant, you yeah, know. Yeah, sure. She's pregnant. But, you know, <laughs> we, I was there with her. Right? We're, yeah. we're doing it together. But I, I felt different, mm-hmm. you know. We started reading all the books, which are good, though they didn't really prepare us for having a child. Yeah. Uh, so much. But I mean, like I started thinking about how I drove. Like, I got, I can't drive so recklessly. I got to slow down because I'm going to have a kid soon. Yeah. So something had happened. And because of that something, um, I felt different. Things were different. We were reading different things and our life was about to radically change. And mm-hmm. so it was, it was an announcement, something we shared, right. And with a lot of enthusiasm and because of being pregnant, we were now feeling different, but something was also coming, uh, of course, the, the birth of our child. And so the gospel is like that. And uh, Bruxy talks about this in, in Reunion, um, that in its, in its essence, you know, the gospel is Jesus is Lord. That's yep. the big announcement. That's the big news, that Jesus is now Lord and Savior. He is not only Israel's Messiah, which he did come. Um, as Israel's Messiah, but he's the world's true reigning king. Mm -hmm. And that Mm -hmm. changes everything. Yeah, absolutely. And I think too, like, um, you know, because that's that's so beautiful. That's such a a big, large, you know, picture. Jesus is Lord, uh, you know, or the gospel in three words as Bruxy claims it. Uh, But I think a lot of times uh, where we tend to get mixed up or we get tripped up, uh, we th- we can say, oh, great, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, and that means He's King of Heaven, which is some right. thing you know out in the clouds somewhere. But that right. doesn't really affect our world. You know, our world is whatever, and Jesus is King. You know, that's really cool in Heaven someday, and we might get there one right. day. 
Um, yeah. when, in, when in reality, and I think you would agree, the, the kingdom of God is something that is, is a, a, an already not yet kind of thing. It's, yes. it's been inaugurated through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ uh, Jesus. And the kingdom right. of God is, is present and active amongst us today. And so Jesus right. is king of the kingdom of God here on earth, right. which is very different than you know, somewhere in the sky. Right. Yeah, I think that's a common misunderstanding is that, yeah, he's king in heaven, uh, which means, you know, he's not really running things on earth. We have to let the modern day Caesars, you know, run things. And uh, no, that's not how the early Christians understood it. They said, no, this is this is the reigning emperor king now. Mm. So it would be a common greeting on a Roman world in the first century to pass another Roman citizen and say, uh, Caesar is Lord. <laughs> um, and so Christians were intentionally using that language to say, no, it's not It's not Caesar, it's Jesus. This uh, crucified and risen Messiah has ascended to the highest seat of authority. Yes, seated in heaven, but heaven is sort of the control room uh, from which Jesus administers uh, his rule and reign on the earth now. So as followers of Jesus, we're following him as Lord, as king now, and we're living in that kingdom now. Mm -hmm. So we're living distinct lives, different kind of lives, because we believe, you know, as often has been repeated, that to say Jesus is Lord means Caesar is not. Right. Um, so the, uh, we're following a leader right now, and we're allowing our lives to be shaped by the rhythms and the values of that kingdom right now. And in doing so, we are subverting and rejecting the values of the earthly kingdoms around us, mm. um, including, you know, uh, the American experiment. Uh, we're going to 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 have values or ways of living that are going to be distinctly different uh, than the American way, um, and that's a whole nother subset. <laughs> because some people conflate those two. They, right. they see the American way as essentially the Jesus way, absolutely, the whole myth of the Christian nation and all that. Uh, but a lot of us are awakening to no, the the ways of Jesus are not always compatible with the ways of America. Yeah, that it's funny you bring that up because that's actually. Uh, so you work with uh, Brian Zond. Uh, yes. He's, is he is his title like lead pastor of the church or what is his what is his yes. role there? Yes, he's lead pastor. Okay. Senior pastor because he just turned sixty. Ah, uh, yeah, he's self conscious. Fair enough. But yeah, <laughs> we'll be talking to him next week, um, and I anticipate that's the direction the conversation is going to be going in. Um, yes. So I'm excited for that. Uh, yes. Cool. But yeah, so that that uh, larger picture of the gospel. Jesus is Lord. Um, and because of that, things are now different. So then our understanding of salvation has to connect to that gospel somehow. Right. right? So, so then our salvation in, in some sense is, is us living into that kingdom reality. Is that a a fair way to, to talk about that? Yeah. So our, our salvation includes how we live but it also is fully aware of the work of the Spirit in forming and transforming and shaping our hearts and mind. So evangelicalism in America is 
has bought into a lot of the assumptions of the Reformed tradition. And going all, all the way back to the Reformation, uh, you know, the Reformation put its stake down on justification by faith and not by works. Mm-hmm. And because of that, evangelicalism in America has this allergic reaction to anything that sounds like works or earning your salvation. But I, you know, for me, my reading of Scripture and my understanding of church history is that God chooses to work with the creatures that bear his image. Mm -hmm. So the work of salvation is a work of the Holy Spirit. In terms, understanding salvation is a way of living a life. Um, There is a, a, so there is, you know, uh, regeneration, you know, that's done by the Holy Spirit. Mm. Uh, I think a better way to understand salvation is to think of it in terms of transformation or change. Mm -hmm. So there is a deep work of the Holy Spirit in that the deadness, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but we're, we're made alive and we are made alive by the Spirit. But then we have to either choose to work with the Spirit or work against the Spirit. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, Paul in the New Testament and in the early church, it was very clear that, yes, you should work alongside the Holy Spirit, um, working out your salvation with fear and trembling. There are things that you need to do as a part of your salvation, not mm-hmm. to earn your salvation, but God invites us to work yeah. with Him. Uh, in that work of salvation or, or transformation. That's, again, why in, uh, in, in in the book of Acts, when Peter preaches his sermon on the day of Pentecost, you see that re- the response was to believe this good news, repent, and be baptized. Mm-hmm. So there is this belief, which is an acceptance of what God has done in Christ for us. But then there's also something for us to do. There is a, a repentance, a turning over, and, of course, baptism as the uh, sort of marker of the covenant. Yeah, oh, cool. Just fun fact real quick. I'm, I'm super excited about this. So I've been serving at my new church now for maybe five weeks, um, and I just had the, the honor and privilege of baptizing two of my students yesterday. Oh, so that's it was great. awesome. Yeah, we did it in the Potomac River, um, oh, wow. and it was a really cool experience. I was blown away because uh, our church had been through a lot of um, – hardship the students had because of sure. the way that the last youth pastor had to leave. Um, so the, the amount of trust and respect that they showed me, you know, to ask me to do something like that uh, meant a lot. And it was really cool to be a part of that. Um, yeah. I've been baptizing people now for 20 years as a pastor and I get excited every single time. It's so great. Uh, it's such, <laughs> a, such a great experience. Yeah. I, so, um, Sorry, I got us. I sidetracked this, but baptism is worth celebrating, so it's worth it. Um, yes, I think so. I was uh, I was watching um, a video that you had put up with I think the gentleman who wrote the um, Ford or the preface to your book. What was his name again? Yes, uh, Derwin Gray. Is the yeah, pastor, Transformation Church. Yeah, and I really enjoyed that video. People, you guys can find it on um, Derek's website uh, <laughs> under his book tab. Is your website just DerekVreeland.com? I just uh, Google yeah. your name and click on it. <laughs> yeah, DerekVreeland.com. Okay. And then the book has a, a page, bythewaybook.com. Oh, perfect. I know the video is on the book page. I don't okay. know if it's on my, on my website or not. Okay, cool. Um, well, yeah, anyway, you guys uh, were kind of talking about this idea of salvation. And I think this ties in nicely with what you were just saying. Um, 
your buddy talked about like the a triune nation, uh, triune nature of salvation. Um, how and he kind of talked about how like it's like the Trinity; it's still one, but triune in nature. Yep. And he said talking about how we have been saved from the penalty of sin, that we are being saved from sin, you know, as we go on, and then ultimately we will be saved from the presence of sin uh, forever. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, that was Derwin's uh, comments in our conversation, yeah. and uh, I completely agree. Uh, again, there's this de facto understanding that salvation is all past. So we talk about when were you saved or you got saved. But if that's all that you have, then salvation is just a transactional thing between you and individual and God. But again, it's this is all Pauline language. This Absolutely. is all from the New Testament. It's all Paul. That salvation is an ongoing work mm-hmm. of, yes, the Spirit— at work within you, but also you participating with that work and doing certain things and changing certain things, adopting new practices and new ways of living. Um, and then it's also a part of our eschatology. It's a yeah. part of where we're going, which, which actually that triune understanding of salvation really fits our understanding of the kingdom of God, right. both in present and to come. And so we're we're striving towards that. Um, like to me, John Wesley could be looked at as the father or grandfather of, of evangelicalism. And what was so helpful in the work and ministry of John Wesley was that intentionality. You know, Wesley's um, battle with the Calvinists, I think, was really driven by that because he mm-hmm. saw— so many Reformed brothers and sisters, and Wesley would consider himself Reformed, but so many Calvinistic brothers and sisters just settle in, you know, and they're like, this is unconditional election, right? Right. We're going to persevere. Preservation of the saints, right? So I don't have to do anything. And Wesley was like, what the heck? You know? (laughs) There, yeah. No, you have to you have to pursue holiness. Yeah. So yes, holiness is a work of the spirit. Wesley would say that, but there's also this life in pursuit, and I sort of translate that. So that life of pursuit of holiness is this life in pursuit of Jesus. Yeah. Um, so there has to be with the acceptance of the work of the Spirit, also an intentionality uh, to walk it out, to walk with Jesus, and to begin to adopt new ways of thinking, new ways of talking, new ways of of living, new ways of relating to one another. Uh, And we we need both. Yeah, absolutely. I think... um... It's crazy too, because I mean, I've I've been made savvy to this recently. Uh, kind of N.T. Wright talks about how uh, the Reformation, the reformers, did a really good job of talking about why Jesus died, but they didn't do so much a good job talking about why Jesus lived. And we need oh, yeah. both of those things. Yes. Um, and so I really like that. I think that's uh, really helpful. And I tried to try to explain to my students um, that our salvation. Uh, the gift of salvation, uh, the free gift of salvation is not um, just like a fire insurance policy or like a, you know, go to heaven when you die card that you get to play. Right. But but God is calling us back to what it means to be truly human. Because um, yes. kind of I, I have this understanding, and I guess, again, it probably comes from Tom, uh, about sin as, as almost like a vocational issue. Right. Like God created... Uh, man and woman in his image 
and uh, to reflect, you know, to be image bearers, reflect his nature, his divine nature onto all of creation and participate with him in his creation, you know, making it beautiful and living with him, uh, working alongside of him. And we kind of mess that up. And so when we sin, uh, we we fail at the thing we were created to be. And so we become less and less and less human. So sin ultimately dehumanizes us. And so salvation um, not only helps take care of that sin bit, but it starts to bring us back to life. And yes. that's kind of my understanding of, you know, Jesus talking about the abundant life, um, yes. you know, is, is the participatory nature of the gospel, getting to uh, partner with God, like you were saying, living out our salvation daily yes. um, as we become more and more conformed to the image of Christ. Yeah. So sin really is the problem. Yeah. Uh, and as we as we talk about atonement, and I think talking about atonement is is important. I mean, how how does the cross of Christ deal with sin? And yeah. I, I think that that's important. And and but I think it, to step back, I think we have to see that yeah, sin is the dehumanizing problem. Not only our individual personal sin, mm-hmm. but big systems of sin, and that Jesus comes to save us from both. So another way to think about salvation is not only in terms of transformation, uh, but you, we can think about salvation as a rescue. Mm, yeah. So Jesus has come to save us or rescue us from sin. That means he wants to rescue us as individuals from personal sins, but he also wants to rescue us from these big systems of sin. And he does that, yes, through the cross— in the in the atonement for me, what's happening is that Jesus at the cross is taking within himself all of the sins of the world. He takes them into himself that he might take sin away. Mm. Sin is the problem. God's not the problem, right? right? God is a part of the solution. The problem is sin. So in the death of Jesus, sin is removed, right? This was the great testimony of John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Mm -hmm. And so as sin is taken away, then there is an ongoing work of the washing and renewal for our hearts. But now this is when discipleship comes in. Jesus is also rescuing us from big systems of sin when we choose to walk in his ways. To me, the, the, the standout is enemy love. Yeah. One of the ways that Jesus is saving us from the big systems of retaliation and war and terrorism um, is by his church, by his followers, living out this radical, counterintuitive understanding of not getting back at your enemies, but actually loving your enemies. Mm-hmm. That is a way of Jesus saving the world. That's a part a part of God's salvation in and through Christ is when we're living out enemy love and taking on our vocation then to bear God's image. Jesus says, that when we're loving our enemies, this is in Luke 6, when we're loving our enemies, we are being just like, we'll be called sons of the Most High. We're being just like God, Mm. who is kind and merciful to the evil and the ungrateful. So when we're practicing enemy love, when we renounce violence and war and retaliation and walk in the peaceable ways of Jesus— we are reflecting God's image into the world mm. and bearing witness to a different way to live. 
And then our our great hope is that as we do that, and Christians have not done that faithfully, right? From Constantine forward, yeah. But our hope <laughs> that as as we live that kind of peaceable, nonviolent life, um, then that shines into the world as a way. There is a way to live without war and retaliation. Um, now, again, we do that out of faithfulness to Jesus. We don't do it because we're promised instant results. Right. And actually, I mean, from the very beginning, first 300 years of the church, the church was practicing nonviolent, uh, non-retaliation. And, of course, you know, the, the blood of the martyrs is the seat of the church. There are these periods of violent persecution. But at the same sense... Uh, within the first 300 years, the the kingdom expanded. And so they say that 10% of the Roman Empire were Christians by the time of the Council of Nicaea. So that's our hope now. And it's it's great that a number of Christians are beginning, uh, like, like you said, in uh, really looking at the words of Jesus and understanding, okay, the, he's giving us our marching orders. So yeah. we're— army, which is an unfortunate metaphor, but it's one scripture uses, yeah. we're this army, but we're armed only with vulnerability. Um, that's a line from my friend Sean Palmer, that Jesus mm-hmm. sends us out as as lambs among the wolves, armed only with vulnerability. But I'm excited that there is a growing movement of people that are willing to embrace the peace teachings of Jesus and leave that out, and live that out, rather. Because I think that that's that's the hope that we have, that salvation will continue to take away these big systems of sin. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like all of what you were just saying, too, that is kind of like what uh, discipleship is. It's like becoming a student of Jesus and then living in a way where it's like, hey, we actually believe what this guy is saying. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think, uh, too, another thing that at least I see kind of is that Um, A lot of times when we focus too much on like the writings of just Paul, like the epistles or something like that, um, and we stay away from the gospels, which I think happens kind of frequently, if we're honest, uh, especially like amongst theologians where you like to debate about stuff. Um, (laughs) But we forget like what the things that Jesus has called us to. We forget the Jesus part. Um, And I just I see that as so important, so essential. Yeah, it's, it, for me in my own uh, devotional life, uh, the lectionary has been so helpful. Mm-hmm. So I have for, I don't know, a couple years now, my Bible reading follows the daily office lectionary. And, uh, uh, you know, a lot of people didn't grow up with a lectionary. I didn't. So they're learning it for the first time. And there is something about the genius of the ordering of the readings. So every morning when I'm reading in the scripture, the lectionary has me read a portion from the Old Testament, a portion from the epistles, and a portion from the gospels. But the beauty of that is the last thing I read every day is from the gospels. Mm. And so nearly every day, the last thing I read in scripture are the words of Jesus. And that has become uh, has become a, an important spiritual practice for me. I mean, I never want to pit Paul against Jesus, right? Right. Because you know, Paul in the second half of Romans twelve is sort of rehashing the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. So uh, you know, I see Paul and Jesus together working right. 
together. But but theologians can kind of pick apart Paul yeah. and focus on certain parts of Paul to the exclusion of Jesus, and that that is a huge mistake. So I think the lectionary is a great way to uh, respond to that problem and and have this kind of habit of reading Old Testament epistle, and then the last thing you read uh, daily is gospel. Uh, that's important. Yeah, that's really cool. I think, is that the, the lectionary that you mentioned in the liturgy that you offer in the back of your book? Yes. You, yeah, that's yes. really, I found that so helpful. Um, yeah, so the back of the book, I have an appendix uh, where I give a uh, morning prayer liturgy. Um, I learned this from Brian Zahn, and I, I took his uh, uh, morning liturgy of prayer, and I, I adapted it. Really, I just kind of, I shrunk it a little bit, some of the prayers. I eliminated some of the prayers that he prays, but what I added in there was um, a little bit larger scripture reading time, because I know for Brian, he does his morning prayer liturgy separate from his Bible reading. Okay. But for me, I was kind of doing it together. So yeah, I stuck that scripture reading um, in the opening opening part uh, from the daily office lectionary. Yeah, that's perfect. That's so helpful. That's a really, I think it, like that appendix is a really um, helpful, practical like here's something you can almost do immediately if you want to exactly. take you know this book seriously. Um, yeah. So I really appreciate that. I, I find that helpful. Um, yeah, but also real quick too, um, I wanted to to ask you because there's there's kind of this been like this separation uh, between what people have deemed the social gospel just uh, the social justice gospel and the real gospel. Right. And they kind of separate this idea of jo- of gospel or of oh my goodness I'm tripping over my words separate the idea of discipleship um, from justice and at the towards the end of your book or actually the last chapter uh, right. talks about um, justice as reconciliation which is a right. key part of discipleship um, right. so can you talk about that a little bit sure I I I, I see this um, not just in social media but in the churches I've served. And I think it's rooted in the modernist, fundamentalist uh, divide in 20th century America, and it still exists. So when the the fundamentalists took the Bible um, and Bible study, um, and the modernists took social justice, and they kind of divided. And I think once we have recentered ourselves on the kingdom of God, I think we see that they both go together. Absolutely. That we both need scripture. We both need a proclamation of the gospel. We both need that announcement and inviting for people to enter into the kingdom. We need that. Um, but we, we, if we're going to be faithful followers of Jesus, we also need to take upon ourselves this ministry of reconciliation. And so in the book, I put this chapter last in part because it's rooted in eschatology. Yeah. Um, So the big picture is that where this whole thing is headed, and I think it's so important because eschatology isn't the caboose at the end of the train. Yeah. It's the theological engine that's driving the whole enterprise. Absolutely. In other words, if if our eschatology is going to a disembodied heaven where God is going to destroy the earth with fire, that's going to shape uh, your preaching and your discipleship and how you live. Yep. But if you have a, if I could be so bold to say, a biblical (laughs) and Christian 
an orthodox, small o, eschatology, one that's rooted in, in the history of the church and the scriptures, it's an eschatology of a new heavens and a new earth. It's this yeah. idea that God is ultimately going to reconcile the heaven and earth is going to be brought back together. So if that's where we're headed, then wait a second. There, If, if ultimate, ultimately heaven and earth are going to be reconciled and we've been given a ministry of reconciliation, then a part of our faithfulness in following Jesus is being part of that reconciliation now. Yeah. Um, so I use the word justice, which is a Bible word. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, there are some people that hear social justice and it gets tagged with a certain set of presuppositions, and it yeah. gets put in a camp that's labeled liberal. But <laughs> right. I just challenge people to do their own Bible study. Justice is a Bible word. Yeah. And just start in the prophets. And, you know, Micah 5, 8 is one, or 6, 8. 5, 8, 6, 8, 5, One eight. of the eights. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mm-hmm. kindness, and walk humbly with your God? So you can start with the prophets and go all the way through Jesus. Justice is this idea of God setting right a world gone wrong. Yeah. And we are invited to participate in that. That, that that's a part. And it's going to look, justice will look different for different people. I don't expect everyone to be a social justice advocate. Mm-hmm. Uh, it might cause you to be a political activist. Um, but any act of kindness, right? Uh, you know, Jesus talks about the separating of the sheep and the goats, mm-hmm. right? So just mm-hmm. Giving a cup of cold water to someone in Jesus' name or or clothing the naked or taking groceries to a single mom in your neighborhood or visiting someone who's imprisoned or caring for someone who is sick, anything that—any of those small acts of kindness for me are acts of justice. Yeah. And I think if we're not doing those things, then— we are treating discipleship too transactional. We should be formed in such a way that, okay, now we want to participate in God's work of, of setting things right. Uh, so whether it's caring for creation and you know caring for the environment and advocating for policies politically— um, that lend towards care for creation um, or caring for the least of these in whatever way. I think all these are extremely important. Uh, racial reconciliation, yeah. where, where we work to bridge a, a gap and to heal and to mend a, a wound between racial groups. Uh, this, is, this is what God is doing. This is a part of the kingdom of God on earth right now. And yeah. uh, and so whatever we do to participate in that, and again, it's going to look different for different people, sure. uh, is uh, an essential component to following Jesus. Yeah, and that's that's so beautiful. I, I remember, um, like, because I think it's it, like you're dead on with what you said about eschatology being so important because it's going to actually shape so, you know, pr- almost, almost everything else. Um, I remember uh, uh, sophomore year in college, sitting in my bedroom at my parents' house, reading surprised by hope yeah like bawling like straight up because i was like god if is if this is true this is so much better you are so much bigger than i was ever taught than i ever thought like this is this is amazing and so i get so hyped about it um i have on my chest i have uh tattooed um on earth as in heaven and i yes. kind of that's like 
that's what drives me every day. Um, is this understanding that the kingdom of God is alive and well, and yes. part of our salvation is that God has called us to participate with Him to bring His kingdom here on earth as in heaven. Um, and I just get so excited about that. <laughs> it's so cool. Yeah, you know, that's why you know, we were talking about Tom Wright earlier. That's why I've been, you know, why I love him so much and appreciate his ministry so much, because it didn't take anything away from me. Same thing. I think so many of us who read Surprised by Hope, and I read it probably, in, it came out in 08. I think I read it in 2010 okay. um, or 09. Uh, but I had the same reaction. I thought this, I mean, just signing up people for heaven, you know, handing out gospel tracts and getting people to say a prayer so they can go to heaven and they die. Yeah. Okay. I see that. But I didn't have the same enthusiasm sure. as when I, I read Surprised by Hope and I began to have a much more orthodox and, and biblical understanding of eschatology. I'm like, this is something I can get behind. Yeah. And still today. It, it, it still drives me today. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I think I can see that too. I think that that was pretty clear for me just in your, your book overall. Um, you know, the discipleship bit often, uh, like we touched on this already, but uh, I guess it was Dallas Willard caught it um, with like the great omission, right? Right. Uh, we, we've pulled it away. Uh, but I just love how you really bring it back together and make it um, so essential. So it's not like a discipleship is something that like the higher level Christians get to do. It's right. not, it's not like you get the salvation bit and then plus discipleship. It's all one in the same. And I think your book did such a nice way uh, painting that, um, that it was just so, so clear. And so I think, I really think people are going to benefit from, from your book. Well, one of the uh, great gifts I received when I was writing the book is I had uh, three readers who read my manuscript, and they were all um, young women in our church, <laughs> cool. uh, young young moms um, who I valued uh, their opinions, and uh, they gave me great feedback. And part of their feedback, one in particular. Uh, when I met with her to go through the manuscript, we sat for two hours and she showed me every word that she had to look up in a dictionary. And <laughs> Very cool. I think I changed every single one of them. Nice. Uh, for example, I, I use the word piety. I use that okay. word one time. And she's like, I didn't know what that meant. I had to look it up. Yeah. And I said, well, I'm changing that. Um, and other things that were a little bit too technical because I did want to write something that has a theological foundation, yeah. um, but doesn't have the theological jargon that's going to confuse people because I did write this book for the church, which is yeah. why I, I took the time to write discussion questions for every mm-hmm. chapter. So there's mm-hmm. 10 chapters. I wrote a hundred discussion questions. So each chapter has 10 questions because my, my prayer and I've added in my in my prayer time. I pray for my little book every day. Awesome. Um, I, I pray for my family. I've, so part of you know my I have a prayer routine, a liturgy of prayer, and I have a, a section where I pray from my heart, offer prayer requests, and I'll pray for people that I know that are in need. But I always pray for my family. I pray for my church. And since the book came out, I pray for my little book, <laughs> and uh, I, I pray and I say, God, I pray that you would take bless and multiply this book, that churches would be equipped to make disciples of the Jesus way. Mm. And so I I love the academic stuff. I love the theological stuff. And so, of course, it, the book has a theological groundedness, yeah. but I want to write it in such a clear way 
that people, I would, I love the idea. I'm hearing it already uh, of, of groups that are being formed now to yeah. read the book together and discuss it. And uh, that makes me really excited to hear. Yeah, we do. So uh, part of the student ministry um, at the church that I work for is this thing called core groups. Um, and core groups are small groups that meet once a week during the regular school year uh, for our high school students. Nice. Um, and this is definitely like at the top of my list right now for something that I would love to right. get in the hands of my students. Um, and if not, the other idea I was toying with is is using it as a teaching series um, and then sure. using the discussion questions kind of uh, as a way that we can um, discuss um, after, you know, the teaching bit. Sure, um, sure. So it's it's really it's an awesome resource. Like I I really hope that um, it gets out there. I think like like you said you I think you nailed what you were trying to do. Um, it's it's helpful. It's readable. It's understandable, um, and it's practical, uh, which is really important because a lot of times we can get stuck up uh, with our theology up here in our head, but if we yes. don't allow it to go to our heart and then carry it out, it doesn't matter. You can believe whatever you want, but if you don't act on it, it's pointless. Right. And I, and I think social media reinforces that unfortunate kind of way of treating theology. I mean, in, in, in the world of academia, you have practical theology. So you have these subsets. You have historical theology and biblical theology, and you have spiritual theology, and you have practical theology. But really, for me, all theology should be practical. Mm-hmm. In other words, if it's not eventually shaping how we live, it's practical without being pragmatic. In yeah. other words, it's not like something you can use. Right. Um, but theology, that is the understanding and study of how God has revealed God's self, what we think about God, what we say about God. If, if that doesn't translate into how we live, it really is worthless. But And I try to avoid most, not all, but most <laughs> of the online theological debates because— sure. Twitter, Facebook, and surely not Instagram. Hopefully no one's on Instagram. <laughs> you go to Instagram to see all the beautiful pictures. Absolutely. Right? And I follow a lot of hikers and people in the outdoors, and I love Instagram for that. Oh, so beautiful. hopefully there's no theological fights on Instagram. But Facebook and Twitter is not the forum and the format for theological debate or discussion. Yeah. I, I don't ever want to debate anyone theologically, but I will have discussions, but I'm yeah. only going to have that face-to-face. Sure. Um, you and and that's good. I mean, that's fine if you can do it in the spirit of love and respectfully. I I think that that is a is a is fruitful when it's face to face, when it's in groups, when it's in a lived community, mm-hmm. uh, not on Facebook or, or, yeah. or Twitter. Um, <laughs> now, see, I just said that, and now it'll be a week from now, and I'll probably get into one because sometimes. Uh. Sometimes I get I, I I fall into it, so I understand the temptation. Yeah, it's definitely tough because it is so it's so like just vile and and evil. And Christians, I think, are some of the meanest people to each other on social media. It's um, awful, which is especially, crazy. Especially atonement. I've written some oh, things my goodness, yes. on on atonement after I wrote um, my reader's guide to the day the revolution began. I, I wrote a few articles online about atonement that I still get comments on some of those. I write once a month for Missio Alliance and I've mm. done three different atonement articles and I'll still get co- comments and you know, the comment section of blogs that can also be dangerous. Yeah. Um, but I just, I won't, I won't, uh, debate anybody in the comment section anymore. Um, it, it's, it's fruitless. Yeah. Uh, 
I think we we bear witness. And in my own church context, I'll sit with people and discuss it. But once they get hostile, um, we've even met, I've met with a few either local, local pastors who are asking, um, you know, I hear these things about Word of Life Church and what do you believe about this? I'll, if they're willing to meet to have an open dialogue, I'll meet with them. Unfortunately, we've had some where it's more of a heresy trial. Yep. Uh, <laughs> I know about that. I'm not, yeah. I'm not here for that. Sure. Um, I, if you want me, I'm, I am an Orthodox Christian, small O. If you want me to recite the Apostles' Creed, I'll do so right now. Uh, <laughs> but I'm, I'm not going to do that. Um, but if you want to genuinely have dialogue, um, and that's what I found when I have, particularly with the Reformed crowd yeah. over substitutionary atonement, um, I follow Tom Wright in saying that there are penal aspects and substitutional aspects of the atonement. Uh, but PSA may not be the best way to talk about the atonement, and it's certainly not the only way to talk right. about atonement. So people ask me, and I kind of lay out my sort of full view, uh, which is sort of expiation, a, a taking away, and a purifying of sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I give the kind of the full version of that, uh, uh, I, I've had Reformed, you know, Calvinistic, you know, PSA-loving uh, brothers in Christ who will say, yeah, I agree 100% with everything you're saying about the atonement. I just want to add to it propitiation. Um, and I'll just say, I want to add that I disagree with you. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Because for me, with atonement, it's not it's it's not PSA so much. It's not penal substitutionary atonement that I have such a problem with. It is the English word propitiation, mm. uh, which is what the English Standard Version and other translations. But ESV is popular. I use the ESV for years. Uh, that's my problem. I think that that is the wrong. Um, exegesis for the Greek word hilasterion. Sure. And so for people that know the Greek and, and, and know atonement theory and atonement history, I love to have those discussions, and yeah. I have. Um, and we end up, because it's, it's been a debate that's been in evangelicalism for a long time. Yeah, Jason sort of won the day again because evangelicalism is de facto reformed. Um, but that that's my, that's my problem, that somehow the death of Jesus— appeases God's anger or satisfies God's wrath or honors God's justice, that's that's the theological problem I have, because that's not what I see in the scriptures. Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. I, I know I've had my fair share of uh, atonement discussions before. Actually, um, uh, real quick, um, like prior, uh, before Marty was a host on the show, the my previous co-host, Andy, is like hardcore... Um, cons- super conservative, re- confessionally reformed, you know, Calvinist um, kind of guy. And like, if I questioned um, or debate, had conversations with him where I said, like, things like, I don't think penal substitutionary atonement is the gospel, that the gospel is right. bigger than that, um, right. it, it was like, well, are you even saved? Like right. how can that's the gospel? You're denying the gospel. How can you do that? So it's there's a lot there. Um, but I think yes, yes, and, and and I've encountered that too, um, which takes us back to our where we started our discussion about the gospel, and uh, which is sad. Yeah, but I absolutely. describe in I describe in the book a little bit of my journey of understanding of understanding the wrath of God because yeah. that's the linchpin 
and propitiation. Yeah. It's what do we mean, what does Scripture mean when it talks about the wrath of God? And uh, Tom Wright was very helpful. Um, uh, Brad Jerzak was another helpful thinker and writer for me to begin to see that wrath, to take wrath literally is problematic. Absolutely. so God, so I, so I see wrath as more when Paul uses that word um, in particular that he's using it as a human metaphor. Actually, in Romans three, when he talks about wrath, at one point there is in English translations a parenthetical statement: "I speak in a human way," which I think is is him tipping his hat that he's using it as a metaphor. Yeah. And metaphorical language is not untrue; it's a different way of using language. So. Uh, you know, no one I know believes that God literally has eyes. Right. <laughs> but we know God sees all, right? Yeah. God doesn't literally have ears, but God hears all. God doesn't literally have wrath, but God does judge all. Mm-hmm. So I, I tell people, if you, if you see wrath as a metaphorical picture of judgment, and just put the word judgment in for wrath, yeah. um, to me that is a helpful corrective. I think so. So if God doesn't have literal wrath and anger, then propitiation really disappears. Yeah. Uh, but there is no wrath to satisfy if God doesn't literally have wrath. Sure. And so in the book, I, I kind of describe my journey because, um, again, just sort of my spiritual journey, um, I picked up PSA and kind of imported it really in my charismatic days. Okay. Because there were people, Reformed thinkers like Wayne Grudem yep. and John Piper yep. were theologically charismatic. So when I was at a charismatic Pentecostal seminary, I was reading their works. And so I kind of just picked up some of these assumptions that are that are within Calvinism. And uh, so in the book, I describe a little bit of my journey of, of dismantling some of that and discovering this this beautiful gospel and discovering the beauty of the cross. Um, and uh, yeah, so I don't have to say more. People can read the book. If yeah, they want do it. Right. They should. Absolutely. People should read the book. Uh, but real quick, because I, I want to I wanna honor your time. I know I, I said I wouldn't take uh, too much time for you. Uh, but is there anything in your book that you're really excited about that you're bummed that you didn't get that we didn't get to talk about or, you know, that you want to tease a little bit? Um, if not, uh, we can move on. <laughs> well, we've we've touched on chapter one and and, and chapter uh, ten, kind of the beginning and the end. Right. Uh, the chapter on the Trinity, which is the way of love, yeah. is super important. I might talk a little bit about uh, just a quick teaser on the chapter I've entitled Habitus, mm. uh, the way of liturgy, and we've talked a little bit about the morning liturgy of prayer. Um, but this, this is a chapter, um, habitus is a Latin phrase, which refers to the sort of inward dispositions of the heart. Mm-hmm. Um, so my understanding of habitus came from Alan Kreider, okay. uh, the Mennonite historian passed away recently. And also Jamie Smith, James K. Smith okay. has written, uh, you are what you love and desiring mm-hmm. Um, these two guys, uh, it's really where, and, and Kreider was the first. I heard Kreider lecture on Cyprian's understanding of habitus. And here's the idea. It's really rooted in virtue ethics. Okay. So this is rooted in Aristotle. Mm-hmm. And the idea behind habitus or this inward disposition 
is that our hearts are formed by the habits that we keep. So a habitus or an instinct, an inward disposition is formed by the things that we do. Mm. And this is, um, this is Aristotle, that we become patient people by doing patient things. Yeah. Um, Aristotle uh, uses the example of musicians, right? So if you're going to learn to play the lyre or <laughs> for modern people, if you're going to learn to play the guitar, you have to practice. Sure. You become a guitar player by practicing guitar. So I have, as a pastor, found this just to be so true. Yeah. That as important as cognitive uh, development and learning and theology is, and all that's important. I have a whole chapter on thinking yep. the way of the mind. All that's important. But as just as important are the habits that we keep, mm. um, that as we practice things like patience and kindness and love and charity, as we practice those things, it's those practices that begin to shape our hearts and ultimately, our decision-making, though informed by our thinking, ultimately is rooted in our hearts and our desires. And, and uh, so I talk about um, exercise and running. I talk about the first marathon that I ran and how it's, it's these habits of training and these habits of the heart um, that really work to form Christ-like character in us. And uh, that just, as a pastor, has become bigger and bigger. Uh, I met with a couple uh, just a week ago, and uh, they were talking about their marriage, but also uh, their their spirituality and mm-hmm. their uh, their walk with Christ. And that's what I talked about. I talked about the habits that they keep. And yeah. uh, when you form a new habit, it's hard and difficult. But once that habit becomes instinctual, not only do you continue to repeat the habit, but it really forms your heart. Mm-hmm. And for discipleship, that is key. Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, to, to, learning a new habit, you know, it, it always takes time. And so yeah. I, I tell the story about about uh, preparing for my first 5K um, and, and, you know, going from being a couch potato to <laughs> being a runner. Yeah. And uh, it's hard. And But if you can kind of press through the difficulty of the early stages of a new habit, you'll slowly start to see the results. And I think that that is key for discipleship. Yeah, that's really cool. That um, The whole liturgy bit is something that uh, I started getting uh, more tor- turned on to uh, more recently uh, because during, so if I'm honest, during my, my college years, when I thought of liturgy, I was like, oh, this is just like old boring stuff that people do when they're lazy and they don't want to speak to God themselves. They read other people's <laughs> words. You know what I mean? The, you've right. heard those arguments. I know it. Yeah. Um, but then I um, I encountered... Uh, Shane Claiborne's book uh, that he put together with some people called uh, The Liturgy of Ordinary Radicals. Yes. I absolutely loved it. And then yes. I, I read um, a book called uh, The Liturgy of the Ordinary. I forget the author's name. Um, uh, I have it on my shelf. Ah, oh, right here. Yeah, The Liturgy of the Ordinary by Tri- uh, Tish Harrison Warren. Yes. Um, which was an amazing book. And then just to, to you know, hear you talk about liturgy in your book and then provide uh, the liturgy there at the end, um, I've really come around uh, to appreciating um, and accepting and trying, although like you said, it's very difficult to get into the habit. I do good for like three, four days, and then it you know, falls off, and then I try to come back again. Um, right, but yeah, right. so I, I really appreciate that part, um, and that's something actually in my own personal 
uh, you know, spiritual walk or spiritual life um, is something that I'm trying to really establish. So I found Very that good. part that helpful and just a nice uh, way to like, um, like a practical thing that we can do, like you're saying, as a, as a key and essential element to discipleship. So thank you for that. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Cool. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, I feel like I could keep talking to you for hours, but also uh, I want to be respectful of your time um, and also respectful of uh, my my wife's time. We have some people that are about to come over, so I should probably help with that. Sure. Um, <laughs> so yeah, th- again, thank you so much. And then um, just so people can find you, uh, we mentioned your website. Um, and also, uh, obviously, the book is, is BTW, by the way, uh, which you can find on Amazon, pretty much anywhere, right? Everywhere books are sold. Yeah, yeah perfect. And then uh, I know uh, Twitter for sure um, is Instagram. Yep, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter uh, at, at Derek Vreeland. Sweet. Awesome. Is there uh, anything else that's important to you that you would like to share with people, like to plug or... Uh, what else to plug? Um, yeah, I, I'm, uh, working with a, a guy in our church. He had pastored for 20 years and he, his name's Doug Maine. He moved his family from Los Angeles, California to St. Joe to be a part of our church. Cool. And he started a, uh, ministry M3 ministries, uh, to support churches, to support pastors and we are starting a um, a Jesus cohort okay. uh, this fall, and so we're doing it together. Doug is going to be teaching most of the modules. I'm going to be doing one called Jesus and the Christian Life, which is uh, based uh, a little bit on um, on the book. Okay. And um, but if uh, so, people if they if they want to to study with Doug and I. Uh, go to M3, the letter M, then the number 3, dash ministries.org. Ministries.org. M3 dash ministries.org and uh, find the Jesus cohort. And uh, I think Doug said we got a couple more weeks uh, before, because it's going to be a cohort of 10 to 15 people. Okay. And he's going to close that down soon. So if people want to study, um, and go a little bit deeper. Um, we would love to have you guys join us. Yeah, that'd be awesome. I, uh, I took that website down and I will be sure to put that in our show notes along with a link Great. to your book, uh, some of the other resources you had mentioned, and then, um, yeah, the, the link to M3 ministries. Great. Sweet. Well, thank you so much for your time again. I uh, really appreciate it. And, uh, for our listeners real quick, before you go, um, you can find us uh, always on Instagram and Twitter at Theology Doesn't Suck. Uh, we do have a website, theologydoesntsuck.com, doesn't suck.com, if you can believe it or not. Uh, you can contact us there with our contact page. Um, it'll shoot us an email, and we'd love to talk, uh, talk with you. And also, uh, you can join our Facebook discussion group uh, where we discuss our episodes and dive deeper in uh, to things that have been said. So thank you guys so much for listening, and uh, as always, go Caps!